You are listening to Space Time Mind, a podcast by two philosophy professors, Richard Brown and Pete Mandick, who talk about philosophy, science and all sorts of other stuff. Please be advised that this podcast contains strong language and abstract ideas not suitable for all intelligent life forms. Enough of your borax, Poindexter. Man's life is at stake. We need action. Take that, you lousy dimension. I should somehow, somehow do a Jedi mind I meld meld Okay, so welcome to Space Time Mind, everybody. I am Pete Mandick from William Patterson University. And as usual, I'm joined by my co-host, he who can be neither named nor described. <laughs> but must be only directly referred to. That's me. <laughs> and we have a special guest today. All our guests are special, but this one is extra special. It's a, a two-for-one, a philosopher and a neuroscientist in a single human body. Britt Brogard is professor of philosophy at <laughs> University of Miami now, and also a neuroscientist and head of the Lab for Multisensory Sciences. Is that the name of your lab? Actually, it's the Brogard Lab for Multisensory Research. But the Brogard no, Lab yeah. for Multisensory Research. So welcome, welcome to Space Time Mind. It's great to have you on. You have so much interesting work that you do. I really like the stuff that you do, Britt. I was looking at your webpage. You have like 100 published articles at this point almost. Yeah, but yeah, around that, I stopped counting. <laughs> well, I mean, you, I, yeah, I heard you like to memorize digits. <laughs> I, I do uh, like to memorize digits now. <laughs> it's become an obsession now. What are you up so to? Now you need enough publications to get to I'm some. I'm up to about 500, but the, it, it gets slower the further I get along. So I'm pretty quick with, with the first 200. So 500 digits of, uh, of pi? Yeah, it's a 500 digits of pi. The, the first 200 go, go fairly fast, except when I have to switch narratives. Then I have to think which order the narratives are actually appearing in. So... But the first 200 are fairly uh, quick, and then the next, then it starts to get slower, as if it's like embedded deeper in somewhere in my mind. What is, I don't get, I don't know what, what you mean by narrative. Is that like something? Oh, so you, you, you got you to create a narrative. You, you, you got to uh, have a narrative where you embed your, your numbers in the narrative, right? So, so for instance, so I start with, I don't start with 3, 1, 4, 1, 5, because everyone, um, everyone knows yeah. Uh, so I start with 92, and and for that narrative, I pick my first day that I entered the Coombs building in Australia. And the guard, I remember thinking the guard looked like, looked like he was 92. Um, and <laughs> then, I went to the, then I went to my office, and I actually had to finish uh, a piece for a fast trip. And, and that actually usually takes place when people are 65. Uh, the next person I talked to uh, was, a, was a, uh, a grad student with, who was at the time 35. Um, and then I went to uh, the secretary's office, uh, Dai's office, 
and um, she was talking about her mom and and for those uh, two people, so for, I have occasionally numbers associated with people. I don't know why it's the case, but but her mom, Dai's mom, is 89, and Dai is 79. So that okay. so that worked for perfect. And then and then I was just thinking uh, four two uh, four two uh, sorry three two three. Um, which is sounds a little bit like going to tea, which is something that we do all the time in Australia. So, um, and then and then I went back after the tea. I went back to my office and actually I finished reading uh, 1984, which I was reading at the time. So 84. Yeah. Um, I also so called yeah. my home and one of the the numbers in in the phone number of my parents is 62, and another one is 64. So that turned out well. And so, so you have a story worked all the way out to 500. De- no. So the thing is that if the story, if the narratives get too long, they get too difficult to remember. So what I have, I have a narrative that goes about 50 digits, a new narrative, 50 digits, approximately whatever fits, another 50 digits, and so when it, when I pause, if you were to um, have me do it at some point, when I pause. Um, it's because I'm switching narratives, so I have to remember the order of the narratives. Uh, so I pause for that, and and um, and it also goes slower. So when I get, get the, the further down I get, the, the slower I get. Um, but it doesn't take that long. I mean, it didn't. I I picked up the first 400 on on the plane ride. Um, oh. <laughs> that's a long plane ride coming from what was it, Scotland, right? Well, it's six hours. <laughs> okay. Uh, so it's not that long. Actually. I thought it took longer. It's only six hours to Scotland. Yeah, so I was. It was to New York, so it was six, about six hours. Yeah, they. Um, yeah, just about. It was from uh, Edinburgh, and six hours. Uh, right. Quite comfortable, United Airlines. But uh, the movie selection was really boring. <laughs> or maybe I had because I'd seen all of them and <laughs> and. Uh, and uh, yeah, I had some work to do, but most of it was online, and I didn't have internet, so um, so I just started. So luckily, I had Pi on my phone the first. <laughs> so why is it why is it Pi? Why why don't uh, why don't people do like the square root of um, uh, two or something like that? I don't know. It's because <laughs> now it's Pi, and there are competitions in Pi, and um, it's good brain training, and it's it's good for you can use it for other things too, right? You can you can memorize like long grocery lists without you know having you know a piece of paper, and so. But pie is just a sort of your tool. That's what you that's what you uh, that's what you compete in. That's interesting. I have, I have, I have mm. some way to go though. <laughs> That's all they have because they have like fifty thousand or something, right? I mean, some oh, that's the world number. record. I don't need to do that. I mean, if I can beat the, the European record, which is about twenty thousand, I'll be happy. Yeah, that's. But it's uh, how many hours would you have to put into that? Like hundreds of hours? Uh, no, I figured out I could do uh, all together. I would have to uh, spend one hundred and fifty hours. I may, I may actually decide that they are better spent elsewhere instead of memorizing five, but. You could yeah, use your superpowers to fight crime, Britt. 
<laughs> Ten trips to Scotland should do it, right? Back and forth. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe a little more than that, right? Yeah. Oh, back and forth, you're saying. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's ten trips, right? That's about it. Then I can do the European That's record. it. So you got one down, nine more to go. <laughs> right. But that, that actually uh, might bring us to how many hours you spend. It might bring us to some of your work on time, which I wanted to, I wanted to talk about. Because I, I really... One of the things I admire about your work there is that, that you, you're, you're sympathetic to presentism, but you're serious about physics, and you want to try to, and so you explore the various options that are there. And that's, that's something that I, I really like a lot, and I, I'm glad that there are people doing that. Um, yeah. Instead of, because you get a lot of this kind of attitude from people that, you know, um, relativity physics is just straight incompatible with presentism. And yeah. I, I just don't think that's right. And I think that, you know, you've done in a very interesting ways you've trying to um, reconcile them. Too. How do you do it? How do you reconcile them? Well, it's it's I don't have the, the solution yet. But I mean, there, there are different ways you can do it. I mean, you, of course, you there could be one um, one frame of reference. That would be the one frame of reference. But that's not a very satisfactory solution because then most of us would not be at the edge of time. So it's, it's kind of a similar objection that you can uh, give to the block, the growing block universe. So with the growing block universe, you have you basically have a fixed past, but then you have a growing uh, edge. The problem is to actually show that you are at the edge, right? So the the growing edge might be now in 2034. Right. And so we're just sitting here being uh, Timbal zombies thinking that we are in the present moment when we really are not. And so you get the same kind of problem with more directly if you pick one frame of reference as the objective now. Mm. Um, but then, and then of course there, there are, I mean, so there's the issue of whether relativity, special, special relativity, e e in fact, is compatible with uh, the fu fundamental physics, uh, physics, right? So that's one of the big questions that we have not been able to combine the major theories in physics. So I think it's a little premature to conclude that special relativity or, or general rel relativity has ruled out presentism or other atheists. Um, right. No, that's, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. It's way too early because we don't know how the quantum mechanics relativity stuff is going to play out. I mean, yeah. I had quantum field theory myself, which is a relativist, relativistic quantum theory, but who knows how it's really going to pan out. And, and also combining, right, uh, the, the uh, macroscopic with the microscopic. So the problem is that we, we have fairly good theories of quantum mechanics. Uh, we have fairly good theories uh, of the universe. Um, but we have no way of reconciling those either. I mean, there are there are some various attempts, but there's no really good way to do it because we're talking about really small things, and then we're talking about really big things. But so yeah. setting aside quantum mechanics for a second, and just assuming that special relativity is true, is 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 that consistent with presentism, or are there are there ways of reinterpreting special relativity whereby it's consistent with presentism? Um, I mean, that, that, of course, I mean, th there's no really good solution that people will be fully happy with. So some people have suggested, well, there's, I mean, there's, no one really says that presentism must be 
the position that there is a single now. So some people would, would resolve it that way and say that, well, you are in a certain frame of reference, but there is a certain progress within that frame of reference, and there's a certain progress within other frames of references, and obviously there's a forward progression overall, otherwise we wouldn't get anywhere, right? Uh, so it's, not, it's simply not true that any frame of reference goes because... There are certain, certain frames of references that are ruled out by other things like causation and so forth. So, so, um, so there is a kind so of... Wait, I'm sorry. What, what, I'm sorry. Bray, what are you saying? You're, are you, you're suggesting that there's a kind of present... I mean, I'm not objecting. I'm just trying to get clear on what uh, you're saying. So but, it, it also depends on how you use frame of reference. So if you, if you use frame of reference as something that is already determined to be in the, in the correct order according to the speed of light... Mm -hmm. uh, then, of course, you're not going to rule out any. What I'm right. saying is that, of course, you, but what you need is you, you can't have frames of references that, uh, now I'm using the, the word in a more loose sense, you can't have frames of references, of course, where uh, that it would include parts of the universe where light cannot reach, right? That's, right. that's, that's how they are normally defined. Those are the space-like separation? Is that, is that, is that what yeah, you mean? Yeah, exactly, that? right. So that is a kind of... There's a kind of progression, right, um, in, in, in a sense of the word progression. And so overall progression, but then you could say, though a lot of people don't think that that is a good solution, a lot of, uh, you could say that for each frame of reference, uh, there is this uh, moving now, which is a metaphor, of course. Uh, There's no really moving now, but there is a... Um, is an objective now within a frame of reference, which um, is not problematic, right? It's problematic. The problematic part is to say that there's one and only one, um, because if if I were moving really fast right now on on a spaceship um, relative to you, then only one of our present moments would be the objective one, which seems unsatisfactory. So. Right. Um, so it might be that if we have to accept special relativity, we have to throw out the notion that there's a single present moment. But we don't have to throw out the notion, I think, of there being flow, or temporal flow, um, or that there's a difference between the past and the future, at least within a frame of reference, right? So it may be that we can't keep presentism the way that it's normally defined, um, but... But it's not necessarily the case that we get this hardcore form of eternalism where we are all subject to a temple illusion when we think that things are moving. So, so yeah. So, did, so, so, so it can, is, this, is this part of the, so is this general view part of the motivation you had in writing uh, your co-authored piece about that is simultaneity, relativity a simultaneity, a temporal illusion? That you're trying to show that you, there could be these two moments and that one of them... I mean, or is this a different project? I just wonder if this is connected. Uh, it, it was a little, uh, a slightly little puzzling feature of uh, something that Einstein uh, is saying in different places. So he, there's the cause-effect principle that he uh, will not want violated, which says that cause and effect cannot be simultaneous, and cause cannot come after effect. Right. Um, so... So then you can set up this uh, little puzzle where you generate a temporal illusion uh, where you can show that that particular scenario is a temporal illusion because it violates the cause-effect principle. Right. Uh, of course, there's a, there's a 
I mean, at least I've seen at least five responses from both physicists and, and philosophers that are about to come out that are going to tell us exactly why we're wrong. Yeah. So, <laughs> I read one. I read one of those responses. I read one by Fuller. Yeah. And I think his his complaint was that uh, that these events are are separated in some space like way, and so that. Um, yeah. And that's that sort of solves the problem. So they yeah. can't they can't get this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, in fact, some physicists who also complain about Einstein's uh, way of setting up the thought experiment as well, because he actually also has. I mean, he he actually starts out with a, a, a Newtonian uh, frame. Uh, so, other physicists will say, well, that doesn't matter for various reasons. But there are actually physicists out there who who think that the that the arguments, who still believe in special relativity, but they, they think that particular argument doesn't work, that thought experiment doesn't work because he starts out with, with a Newtonian uh, framework. So, which is what he does. He has, he has this, uh, um, the, the state stationary frame. Uh, there are reasons to think that that is okay and that doesn't matter. Uh, but others, there are at least some physicists that I've read who think that it does matter. They don't reject special relativity. They just think that particular argument doesn't work. So, yeah, I think um, I think it's interesting to explore. Um, I think that. Well, so can I just ask you about so on this view where there are multiple present moments? Because I think that's an interesting kind of view. Um, so that if you said you well, if you give up the idea that there's a single present that includes everybody, um, yeah. then you can kind of make sense of the idea that. Well, there's a present that, from my point of view, a present moment from someone else's point of view, and those yeah. different things can be true. And those, if you loosely call one of those frames of references, different things can be true relative to those. Um, uh, that that was basically what you were suggesting. I mean, that's one uh, one one suggestion. I'm I'm not sure which one I'll end up with, but right. But this is one you were this is the one you were just suggesting. Yeah, I think it's the most promising because. Although we would have to reject classical presentism, we also do not have to accept the sort of hardcore form of eternalism that does not allow for any kind of flow mm -hmm. or dynamic time. Um, but you say you, you're going to have to accept some kind of eternalism. You do. Uh, yeah. You do, because that would have to be uh, some overall sort of eternalist order uh, to the universe. Um, but but that would be something fundamental about time that would make it not just a another dimension. It would be different, fundamentally different from space, mm -hmm. uh, insofar as it would allow for this dynamic time within the frame of reference. I mean, I'm not happy with that solution, actually, but it's, I don't see any better solutions if you want to be a presentist, and it turns out that special relativity is true. Britt, do you, uh, what do you think about the size of now? How, with respect to temporal extent, is, is the present moment a single point in time, or is it something that's smeared out into a, a specious present? I mean, there's... There's a possibility that time is atomic, or it's maybe you can keep dividing each moment into uh, smaller moments. Uh, it looks like it looked like there's a, that, that it's got to be atomic because there's a Planck length which which uh, you can't really go be, uh, below that, right? So, so presumably there's it's atomic. Um, 
space and time are atomic in that sense. Now, by so, atomic, do you mean that they have to be quantized, or do you mean something? Yeah, else? I mean, I mean that that they're not. Uh, I mean, that's the, the question of Gungi time versus atomic time. And I see. So there's a single, an indivisible moment of time, which yeah, are, uh -huh. because it seems that there the, there are certain lengths, the Planck length, that you can't you cannot get, um, you can't divide that up, right? According to the theories. So it looks like that would be the smallest moment. And also but is that, but that, so that may be true. So th this, to follow up on Pete's question, that may be true. I mean, supposing that's true of like time as it is, that would, would that suggest that time as experienced is the same? I mean, uh, no. We no time I, I thought Pete was asking about like the phenomenology of time. Is it the moment now? Or, or were you oh, not asking well, about that, Pete? I want to get into that. We know that it's probably half a second long. It's phenomenal, phenomenal, the phenomenal present yeah. is half a second long. Yeah, because it takes about half a second for uh, anything registered from the external world to become conscious. So it would have to be at least half a second. And it also just seems seems phenomenologically bizarre to suggest that we ever experience things as being wholly present in a Planck instant. Our experiences never seem to be that temporally punctate. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, they're, they're not. I mean, they, our experiences do flow. But if you were to say what would the smallest moment be that you could experience or the smallest time length of time you could experience, it would have to be about half a second. Yeah, um, because I, I, would, yeah I don't know, half a second. So you're basing that on the, on the time that it, like, that you get from the stimulus from the nerve to, like, your... N200 or something, like when it first hits the processing centers. I mean, I'm thinking of vision, uh, auditory stuff maybe. But So that's that's what you're basing this half a second stuff on, that um, that it, the time that it has to actually get to the sensory areas to be processed. I would have thought it would have been more having to do with um, maybe some of the frequencies that the neurons are firing in, like maybe theta or gamma or something like that, and maybe that the but – I don't, but I don't know. So I think that – I mean – I, so I wonder. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not saying that it's. Uh, I'm not giving a reason why it's about half a second. But uh, Christoph Koch um, has given various reasons for thinking that it's about uh, half a second. Oh, he uh, has. Based on that. what the time it takes to for people to register a signal, and and that's just. I mean, that's the way you consciously register it. It's, of course, right. the brain can act much faster without consciously registering anything. So we're much, much faster when we don't have to make things conscious. Can we perceptually, can we perceptually discriminate things in time that are shorter than uh, half a second? So like if yeah. you play two tones. Oh, we can, we can uh, outside of consciousness, sure. But uh, not inside of consciousness. No. Well, there's some work by people like Rudolfo Linas at NYU, and uh, he's, uh, he's argued that um, that if you play two tones really quickly together, that subjects perceive them as one single tone. Oh yeah. Um, and so that and that's and they uh, I don't I don't think it's half a second. That sounds five hundred milliseconds sounds. I had to review this paper actually, but five hundred milliseconds sounds way too big. I, I thought that Yeah, that, I mean, that people would say 200 milliseconds. Yeah. And some people even say less than that. Some people say 100 milliseconds. Um, right. So, maybe it's true that you can actually 
become aware of something within a smaller uh, time frame, but that when you have to react on it, that you need a little more, a little extra time because that's what the what the half a second is based on. I see. Yeah. But, see, what's interesting too is because I'm thinking of kind of a like auditory analogy to visual crowding. That you know that yeah. sometimes there's just you just can't pay attention to or single out all of the elements in an array if they're arranged in the yeah. right way. And I. Um, I, uh, I think that, you know, Ned has some interesting stuff about the grain of attention. Now, I'm not really invoking that, but I do think that you can have something like auditory crowding when you get the things too quickly together. We perceive them as a single thing, which does suggest to me that there's a kind of quantum or quanta uh, below which if things occur too, too, in too quick of a succession that we categorize them as one thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I think that's, that's an. Important. I mean, it's not a Planck scale, <laughs> but I think that there is a, a quanta of uh, of exper- expelled or experience time. I think that's right. That it's that's, not that's, even. No, that's, that seems that seems right. That seems right. Uh, of course, they, I mean, yeah. So the the time frame for a reaction uh, without consciousness is is uh, is much quicker. Yeah. So I mean, you can react. Uh, I mean, there are various experiments from the early nineties where where people are so. I forget if they turned off the, the blindfolded them or turned off the. No, they did not blindfold them because they were relying on vision faction. So, um, but they uh, they had them reach and grasp um, an object, and they were to say something like "ta," uh, the moment that they uh, saw it it um, appear or change direction. Ta, because it's like a really, really, really the easiest, the quickest sound to say is ta, right? So <laughs> one of the easiest anyway. Uh, and wow. yeah, and they were, their, their hand aperture and everything was fully formed way before, I, I, I don't remember the exact um, timing here, but way before they were able to say tar, uh, their hand aperture was actually uh, already formed and ready to grasp and one thing that was interesting was that if they went, if they quickly changed the direction too quickly of, of an object, um, they so they thought so the object would start to move from here to here, but then they would maybe change like this or just make some change that would be very quick. Um, while they were still grasping, so they, the subjects were asked afterwards. Uh, well, did the what did the cha- the object uh, actually uh, go in a straight line, or did it take a you know a different path? And they would say no, it, it went in a straight line. But when they looked at their both their gaze and their hand aperture, the hand aperture and the gaze actually tracked that change. So as they were reaching to to the object, the hand was like fully aware, and the gaze was fully aware of where the object was, but they could not consciously see it. So. So we can we can obviously track things uh, much quicker outside of consciousness. Consciousness is slow. Yeah. Consciousness is slow. <laughs> yeah. It slows uh, us down. <laughs> it does. It slows us down, right? <laughs> I'm way better without consciousness. <laughs> Same here. But as they say, without consciousness, uh, you know, life would be boring. <laughs> Especially as I a musician, we're not, I don't. We would not feel the, it being boring, right? So. Yeah. Right. Sure yeah. There you go. <laughs> you wouldn't feel it being boring. Yes, that's a good point. You wouldn't notice. <laughs> um, but what's interesting to me is since we were talking about musicianship earlier, and since Pete and I are both musicians, and so are you, uh, Britt, and your daughter as well, 
um, or at least you say you were, right? Uh, I, I think it's interesting that when you think about um, about the phenomenology of time with respect to playing music, because yeah. uh, there there's a real sense of time passing and of also yeah. keeping track of it passing and coordinating with other people that are keeping track of it passing. Um, and, you know, that... I think that, that that kind of phenomenology really is important. This is something, I, again, I think is, you bring out in your work a lot, is that this, this phenomenology of passage is something we want to save so that if we can, I mean, maybe we have to do some attenuations, change presentism if, if you know, we want to keep yeah. it. But the thing that really is important or that seems important is the phenomenology involved in the experience of time proceeding. And I think that really comes out very clearly when you're, when you're playing music. And so, I mean, yeah. I don't know how much to make of that but I just thought it was interesting yeah I think I think that's right um, definitely um, I think the well, my daughter as, as a drummer it's uh, yeah it's that's a lot of coordination as you know yourself I mean that's it's it's yeah. a lot of things that you have to coordinate at the same time right so you have to uh, you basically are responsible for keeping the beat for the whole bands um, I know I was really depressed when I found out that's what I was responsible for. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you <laughs> I don't keep want to do that. Time, right? And you, and then sometimes you read music. Um, it's and uh, depending on how difficult the piece is. Uh, so, yeah, so sometimes you music, and you do something with you know with all your outer extremities, uh, and so it's 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 pretty time. Why is complicated? I think, and and there's something that I mean. It's it would seem hard to make sense of what's going on there on from a, like an eternalist position. I, I mean, I'm sure they could tell some kind of story about it, but it seems yeah. really hard to make sense of how, what is it that you're keeping track of as this thing is. I mean, progressing, yeah. and, and you know, for me, like when I play with a metronome a lot, what's funny is that as I'm really focusing on the the clicks of the metronome, the more you focus on them, the sometimes you really feel like you're out of line with them because they start to, it seems like they slow down a little bit, but yeah. then objectively you realize, no, you're not because you see that the hand is hitting but, right when the light is wait, flashing. Slow down, you guys. Wait, wait a minute. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm inclined towards <laughs> about consciousness, about representationalism, and it seems that representationalism makes eternalism pretty easy on this matter, that all, all, the, all the, the, that you have to do is explain the appearance you don't have to assume that the appearance reflects a reality. You just have to explain the appearance as, as a certain kind of representation. And so the eternalist says that at these different moments in time, each of which are all there spread out in eternity, at these different moments in time, there are these different representations and the different representations have different contents. They represent things as happening at different times. I mean, the, the, it's true that the eternalists can explain it. Um, they they can explain it in the sense in the, in the sense that they they take you to be a, a space time worm. Basically, you have to do that, and then that's my uh, favorite dance move: the space time worm. And then get a worm up. Each uh, each uh, stage or slice of that worm uh, is experiencing something different, right? Right. And and so so each worm thinks that it is the one that is conscious and is here right now. So yeah, I guess that's how they would explain it. Right. 
Well, I didn't say that they couldn't explain it. Right. What I said is that they have trouble making doing justice to the phenomenology because that story you, you told about it, there being a static moment at which I represent this certain content, and then at the yeah. next static moment, a different content. Um, that's not how it feels. So, <laughs> it feels like I'm making very fine-grained um, adjustments to my behavior in real time as it's unfolding, and I'm also aware of myself doing it at the same time. So I'm keeping Richard, track. Uh, you, it seems like I'm keeping track of multiple things there. But when you guys say do justice to the phenomenology, do you mean assume that it is accurate? Assume that it accurately reflects what's really going on? Of, of course the eternalist can't do that because they're assuming that's not what's going on. I yeah. actually don't think that is true that the eternalist cannot do that. Uh, right. That's assuming that you have to account for something like micro physical temple properties. Uh, I've argued in a different paper with uh, Dimitri Garcia that you can also, as an eternalist, you can also uh, take time perhaps to be emergent. I mean, maybe weekly emergent properties. Right. Yeah, I read that paper. It's time and perception. Is that uh, time and time perception? Like is that, yeah. in to yeah. topoi or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting idea. Is your basic idea is that it's it's kind of the same as water and, and tables and chairs. Um, those things are real, uh, but they're real because they're weakly emergent from the fundamental micro physics and by weekly emergent we mean something like you could know one given the other or it's deducible or I, you know whatever but that there's this kind of nothing more than that stuff down there now that's one of the things I, I wonder how you yeah. make sense of this on your view is how is it that um, uh, well I'm, I guess in the paper you tell a story about the brain's internal clock and you say something like that could help here but I, I, I'm not really clear on how that does help so maybe you could say some about how yeah. Well, I don't want to say too much because I don't support that <laughs> position, obviously. Okay. <laughs> you so don't. I don't want to make it too easy for the eternalist, right? But uh, the reason I don't support it is that I'm not an eternalist. Um, so Even of that week of this kind? Uh, if I had to be an eternalist, if forced to be, I would be that kind of eternalist, yeah. Yeah, because your real view came out at the last paragraph of that paper, right, where you say, oh, well, maybe these time is like a basic law-like thing that's yeah. fundamental. That was re that sounds like really what you were pushing for, or what now that I'm talking to you. Yeah, yeah, that's when you can see <laughs> the different uh, co-authors break through. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, we write this whole paper on eternalism, and then it's like, no, I want this paragraph in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, so you're just saying if you had to accept some – because I thought the premise of that paper was as follows, that physics um, that is looks like it's going to be committed to eternalism, eternalist-type properties, because that's what the equations appeal to. Is that – Yeah. But yeah, you think that I mean, you can so – That would be in the majority of you, right, in, in physics. So, But then what – yeah, so the internal clock, the brain's internal clock can at least explain something because what it does is that it takes, it takes in uh, moments, right? So it takes in moments um, and it stores them until it can generate a duration. So, so there is a, so, so, so the brain, of course, is not a really good uh, time tracker. 
it's not really good because a lot of things like attention, as you just said, you just mentioned attention as one of the things that can change time perception. And that is consistent with the psychological theories of how the brain keeps track of time because there's this gate that opens and closes um, according to attention. So when you pay attention to something, uh, sometimes you can actually get the time to slow down. It seems to slow down, right. as you were saying. And that's because the gate opens or closes relative to attention and not just relative to time. Right. So, so of course, the brain is not a really super time tracker. But so it's it's very often wrong, but it probably is also right. It's probably not the case that everything so, so. we feel is as passage is completely is an illusion. I mean, so one. I mean, so if you look, if you think about weak emergence in the general kind of case, because I, I like the way you appeal to this stuff. Uh, if you look at water. And you will talk about liquidity as a weakly emergent property of water, um, and uh, then you have to tell a story about well, how is it weakly emergent? And we can we can tell a story about the bond, the chemical bonds between the atoms being sort yeah. of weak, and so that allows them to flow around. And then we go, ah, oh, yes, now yeah. I can. There's a kind of uh, aha. I see how liquidity could uh, arise from this kind of property. And the same with ice. Ah, oh, the energy is lowered. They form a lattice structure. It forms yeah. solid. Interesting. Okay. So so how does the timekeeper and the gate open? I'm not seeing the same kind of, oh, I see how a duration gets built out of these. Because what you, it sounds like what you said is you, yeah. you take in moments, it stores them up, then you produce a dura uh, uh, an extended, you know, f flowing thing. But how, do, how, how does it do that? But, oh, by the way, we, we need to... Sorry, we need to make our little pause for a break. <laughs> Say by the bell, Brad. <laughs> uh, right. no, we're going to hold you to it, though. When we come back from the break, you're going to explain how. Okay. <laughs> Welcome back from the break, everybody. That was a good break. <laughs> so, Richard, I thought you asked a pretty good question about a seeming disanalogy between the plausible weak emergence of, of water or water's liquidity and uh, the alleged weak emergence of time. Britt? Yes. You got an answer? <laughs> so, there are two possibilities. Uh, Either there will be uh, something, some, some story we can tell outside of the brain, right? About how these microphysical temporal properties come to be bound together uh, to generate some kind of flow or dynamics. Uh, and, but it would be explained in terms of fundamentally static properties. So similar to the story about water, there might be a story to tell about time mm -hmm. at a high level, so, so or medium level, time at a medium level, and time at a fundamental level. Now that story, uh, I don't, I don't have that story. Uh, I think I would be quite world famous if I had it. But <laughs> um, there's another possibility in which case it, the, 
the emergent properties would really be brain-based instead of being light water. Uh, so they would probably be more like response-dependent properties rather than weakly emergent properties in the standard sense of that word. I and see. if that is so the case, then the... You mean, but you mean by that dispositions to cause flowing or passage or something? or? Yeah, but the, the whole story, of course, will need to... I mean, there's, there's several ways you could, you could, you could, um, uh, you could make sense of that. But yes, you could, that, that would be one way. Uh, but the main part of the story would be to give an account of how the brain generates flow from the input. And it wouldn't be a so good story, the one that Pete had, about it having static representations that just say things are passing. Would that, I mean, because that's not going to satisfy you, right? No. Color, I'm sorry, Brent, right color, when you were saying that, you, you, my connection cut out. Can you just re-say what yeah. you said? I'm, I'm yeah, sorry. I didn't hear that either. We lost the audio on, on you, Britt. Oh, okay. Uh, where did you lose it? You, uh, you were saying something about response dependence. Oh, uh, Richard was asking you whether your view was similar to the kind of eternalist representationalism that I sketched. Oh, yeah. Well, the main part of the story would not be something like eternalist representationalism. The main part of the story would be, look, we need to explain how the brain creates flow out of instances, static instances that are coming in that the brain is that the brain is uh, um, sort of absorbing somehow at least sometimes and so the, the brain has this timekeeper or internal clock it, 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 it's partially uh, driven by attention but it's also driven by real time and we need to make sense of how those instants get to be bound together to create flow. How does the brain does, uh, do that? And you were comparing it to color? Well, take all the, your favorite uh, secondary qualities in, in the old-fashioned sense of secondary quality, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we, few of us would want, to be, would want to eliminate all those secondary qualities. So simply saying that time experience is an illusion, I think, is the equivalent of saying that color experience is an illusion, texture experience is an illusion, uh, at least, um, well, heat, heat experience is an illusion. Do you think the representation is about qualia? A the representational theory of qualia makes it an illusion so that if, you're, if what red, the experience of red is just representing that there is red in the environment? I'm, I'm not endorsing that view. I'm just saying, is that, are you going to make a similar kind of... Um, or is there a disanalogy? Because I took it what P was saying. He wants to say the same thing about red that he was saying I about time. Well, I mean, there's no, but like one way of being a representationalist about the experience of red is to also be what's called a physicalist or a realist in the color literature. So red is some mind independent or response independent yeah. pro property of, of objects or, or uh, wavelengths. Um, and then the, the, that kind of representationalist says that you just detect red. The, um, the kind of eternalist representationalism uh, that I was sketching would be more like uh, analogized to a color representationalist who is also a subjectivist or mm -hmm. secondary quality theorist about red that says that, no, there's no objective property of objects which is red. Uh, but nonetheless, yeah. it's a so it's kind of an error theory or fictionalism about red. But nonetheless, the red experience 
uh, or, or if a phenomenal character is, is accounted for in terms of these representational contents, it's just that the representational contents are in some sense always illusory. There's no real... Or but they're not, right? They're not. Uh, and, I mean, just as you would, you, if you were checking that line on color, you wouldn't say that your color experiences are illusory. Oh, me? Uh, unless unless you're going like Harden's way, so <laughs> I was you know I was thinking of Harden, right? So okay. Harden, yes, he would say that. Right. But there there are various other ways. You don't have to uh, go his way, right? You can be objectivist or uh, relationalist. Or, yeah, no, but I was talking about time, and I'm I'm actually very attracted to eternalism, and um, yeah. the one thing you might say about time is that um, the the phenomenology. Uh, that points against eternalism is just uh-huh. massively, systematically illusory. There is no privileged now. It, it's just an, my each of my various time slices think that they're special. But but Britt was I thought was making an analogy by saying, look, if you don't want to say that about color, then it's equally implausible to say it about time. Or so why why do we why would you accept why would you say that one's illusionary and the other's not, just because you have an antecedent theory that says that one's an illusion? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I hear the Einsteinian special relativity stuff is making a pretty strong case for eternalism. But it doesn't. It and in fact, I think you can well, formally prove no, that it's neutral no, with respect to uh, presentism and internalism. I mean, there's, uh, in fact, someone wrote a paper on this where they show that you can have it with presentism and without presentism, no contradictions in special relativity. Or I, I deny the existence of that paper. Well, I can probably email it to you. I'll email it to you. But I anyways. think many people have written papers on that, actually. Whether those papers are right, I don't know. But there are lots of papers on <laughs> <laughs> so I see. So, so P, your feeling is that you just you believe this argument from special relativity has so much force that you think that it's gotta be the case, or it's more likely the case that the phenomenology of time is an illusion. But with respect to color, we don't have some antecedent theory that suggests that it's illusionary in the same way. Right. Yeah. yeah see, yeah. I I don't see why I don't know what your the special relativity argument you're appealing to here is that's supposed to do, do render this giant. I mean, that's a pretty substantial result, I think. It's the, it's the normal one that eternalists trot out. I think that they're pretty much right about that. Uh, but we just, uh, Britt already outlined a way to respond to it. <laughs> what's wrong with the response? I, I, don't, I don't understand it well enough to say what's wrong with it. Okay, I, I so need what, more time before the, it sinks in. Can I, can I, can I uh, focus on time in a slightly different way then, since uh, P doesn't want to defend his view? <laughs> Um, uh, Britt, can I ask you, because I really, I, I think I w- want to be a presentist too. I'm like you in that sense. I, I, I deeply want to believe that it's true, but I also like physics enough to know that there's at least a prima facie worry there, so I, I worry about it. Um, yeah. Uh, but so, so there's two things that, you know, eternalists have talked about. One is the problem of temporary intrinsics, which I don't find all that interesting, but I, I know you've written on it. But then the other one is um, time travel. So I wonder if you have any views about presentism and time travel. Is, is it going to be on your view that it has to come out to be impossible? I mean, because the, the, the data is not in it. We don't know if it's physically possible or not yet. Um, yeah. So I wouldn't be such a bad thing if, if you had to say it was impossible. I wonder if you've thought about this or not, because I, I, I haven't read anything by you about this. Yeah, I have not written anything about it, so I've only thought about it. Uh, I think it's going to be impossible. 
Okay. Unless we're talking about time travel, that is like maybe we can show that we can get some microscopic particles to leap, you know, a few microseconds into the past or something. I mean, I, I would. So why, I, why do you think it's impossible? Because I mean, if you if you limit yourself to just general relativity, uh, the existence of closed time-like curves is just. I mean, the, you know, that's. They're ubiquitous. They're not hard to generate. I mean, yeah. and then the question would just be: Is our is our space time manifold one that allows those kinds of closed time like curves to exist or not? That's an empirical question, it seems to me. Well, so I would I be fine if it were. Question. Yeah, I, I, do, I do agree. So this was just my my thought is that it's impossible, but. So, but why? What was behind that thought? Like, what what well, what's motivating it's you? It also depends on what you define as time travel. What do you define as time travel? Do, do you define it as you actually traveling back in time? Mm -hmm. Because then you, you have all these metaphysical paradoxes that I take to be more compelling than anything else. If you don't define it as that, then maybe it's possible. No, I do define it as that. But So what are the paradoxes that are so terrible here? Is it the I grandfather mean, paradox and those kind of things? Uh, you can go back and you can kill your so the grandfather paradox. You go back and you kill your grandfather or something like that. Right. Um, and well, my favorite one is the suicide. Um, you know, have you seen this movie called Looper? <laughs> it's a, not a great movie, but it's a it's about a guy who eventually travels back in time and kills himself. <laughs> okay. And, and then what uh, Well, they don't. They in fact in the movie they tell you not to ask those kind of questions. Uh, one, at one point they're having a dialogue and the guy says, "Think about time travel hurts my head. Shut up!" And he shoots the guy. <laughs> <laughs> so they don't want it. So I'm not saying that's logically consistent, but I, I think it's interesting. The idea of traveling back and killing yourself and being in this kind of loop, and you know, I read a story once I about this too. That was yourself, kind of, right. That you end the loop, right? Well, no, because uh, what, some ways of doing it is like you know, you don't kill yourself, you just hurt yourself, and then you stumble into a a, a, a wormhole, and then you come out the other hand saying, "I gotta finish them off," and then so you just basically go in a circle. Okay, so you didn't commit suicide. Yeah, I, I think that. Well, this is what I was gonna say. I, I so one one response to the uh, paradox stuff is to invoke so-called banana peel laws, <laughs> which I know are ridiculous, um, but, but that's what they're called sometimes. And the idea is that maybe there are, I mean, here's a more physical way of putting it, uh, maybe that there are constraints um, on the way you set up the system, um, the initial state of the system, maybe there are constraints on the initial state of the system uh, in a regions of space where there are closed time-like curves. And if that were the case, then maybe it, you couldn't go back and kill your grandfather because, you know, as you were going to kill him right, right, on the right. banana peel or whatever. Now, a lot of people would say it's kind of improbable that there are these, that, that basic laws of physics prohibit um, configurations of initial states in this way. But I don't really see that as very convincing because we don't have enough experience with closed time-like curves, in my opinion. We, we've never seen one. So how do we know? I mean, we have this feeling like, oh, you just specify the initial conditions of the state, and then you calculate how it evolves. And if, if, if yeah. time travel is possible, you can't do that in some circumstances. You can't just arbitrarily say, aha, I'm going to do this and calculate the outcome, because some things will not be allowed, um, given that you can't, you know. Now, I or just don't find that improbable that that could be a law of nature. I think, I mean, another way of looking at it, and this is how I hear Lewis's response to this, is that you don't need, you don't need to posit anything special about physics. It's just a matter of logic that you can't, if you are, you can't also not be. And so it's just, if you already exist, it's just um, ruled out by non-contradiction that you're not ever going to do anything that results in you 
having not existed. So it's, it's not pos- it's not positing some like ad hoc extra bit of physics. I think the right. The, well, you have to in order to guarantee that there are banana peels in the right place. <laughs> well, but so here's another another puzzle, right? So the armchair philosopher's puzzle. So let's say that time travel is possible, and it also becomes technically possible. So we have these people traveling back, right? So uh, it may not be me, but let's say it's within my lifetime. So I travel back, uh, and of course I want to see what I'm doing. Right, so I should have all these people like standing around. In fact, maybe millions of like different uh, people that look a bit like me. Just maybe they're a little bit older. Uh, maybe they don't look that much older because there'll be all these techniques to make you look younger. So that so I should, uh, why don't I see all these doppelgangers um, around me right now? Why is there not someone who's standing here in the room like looking at me right now? Well, that's what I was saying. There may be there may be deep reasons or physical laws or maybe not laws of logic, I wouldn't go that far, but some kind of physical mechanism uh, as yet unexp- undiscovered which prohibits that kind of activity like that every time you try to spy on yourself, the, the, the window fogs over or your eyes suddenly blur out or you get lost on the way there. I mean, that's, that, that, that would have to work out. That's what I meant by constraints on, the, on setting up the system. So you can't just say, aha, I go back in time and I observe myself. Maybe that's yeah, I don't. I don't see why logic doesn't cut it. There's a lot of things you can't do. Any of your family members, because they would they would find it weird if you're standing. You know, they would right now report that they have these people standing around. So you can't observe your uh, family members. You can't well, observe. You can't your do friends. it with them knowing it. Right, and you can't observe your friends. And if you have uh, a couple of thousand Facebook friends, you can't observe them because they will know what you look like. Yeah, but there's four, four billion people. So they'll know that it's impossible for you to... I'm not following what the argument about observation is. You're, you're assuming that if, there, if time travel was possible, that there'd be a lot of auto-voyeurism. And so since you don't see your, your uh, voyeur, your futuristic <laughs> voyeur counterpart, <laughs> what's the argument about observation? Oh... So if you take all your friends, including all your Facebook friends, who you know r- roughly where you could not be at certain times, you cannot, there are lots of constraints in that world where you travel back, right? There's a lot of things you can't do. Right. But um, no, he, but he was asking about the first step. Why do you think there'd be voyeurs or, um, but uh, I mean, what, what, what would happen? What do you want to do when you travel back? Do you just want to sit in a dark room and not observe anything? I'll tra- I'm going to tra- travel back in time to the first century deprivation tank <laughs> and just go in there. <laughs> Maybe that's the only thing that's allowable. Who knows? <laughs> no, but I mean, so look, you know, uh, you, you could go back and meet Socrates. He didn't know anyone you know. Um, so there may be some things that are allowable. Uh, you could go back and observe the initial state of the, you know, um, Big Bang or something perhaps. Who knows? Uh, my my only claim, my only point was that these kinds of paradoxes, so-called paradoxes, can first of all be resolved logically, like like Lewis said. I think that's that's right. But then also, what they don't show, they don't seem to be suggest that there's a contradiction. No contradiction is entailed. 
Um, rather, what seems to be entailed is that something weird about physics would be true, that somehow the universe would have to be set up to disallow certain kinds of things from happening. Now, yeah. the, the kind of, I mean, you get, that's, it's weird. And a lot of people say, oh, well, it had to be God who would stop you or some kind of like, you know, omnipresent who's observing everything and going, oh, you're about to look at yourself, stop. Uh, and I just think, well, you know, God, if there is one, um, that he could do it or she could do it. But why couldn't it just be some weird fact about nature that these kinds of things aren't allowable? Yeah. Uh, it's not I mean, a lot of constraints on your your uh, your actions, right? The next time I see someone actually stepping on a banana peel, I will think that they're from the future. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. How much uh, for you guys? I know Richard loves uh, libertarian free will, but I do. Uh, how much of, the, uh, of your attitude about this time travel stuff is predicated on a certain view of free will? And I ask because you know well, I'm an absolute believer in free will. But well, libertarian like, or compatibilist? No, libertarian. Okay, cool. Oh, okay, all right. Because I'm not a libertarian, so the grandfather paradox doesn't bother me at all. Like, uh, right, there are just, it's, yeah. Lot, just, yeah. There's, certain, there's all sorts of things I'm, I have to do, and not killing my grandfather is one of them. That's fine with me. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so if you're, comp I mean, this is something I think that's right. A lot of times people, uh, we're not doing it here in this conversation, but a lot of people who do talk about these kinds of paradoxes often seem to me to really be talking about free will versus determinism. Like, can you do what you want in the past? Or, no, you can't kill your grandfather, so you're not free. And that really seems like a different issue uh, having to do with freedom. I agree. Yeah, whereas to me, I'm just saying, well, there's, uh, you could put it in this sort of bland physics way. There are constraints on the way the system can be set up and which states it can evolve into, given that, uh, so you can't set it up in any way you want and have it evolve in any way you want. Um, and we're, there are already kind of analogies from physics you could use. You know, I could talk about, uh, I think there's a kind of interesting global to local uh, determination in general relativity, actually, um, that there has to be these global kind of time properties in order for you to get the, the relativistic ones. Um, so I don't know. So I, it's not that weird to me that there might be these weird kind of constraints, but, they, but it is weird. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not contradictory. That's the only claim that I'd want to make. Yeah. The, the more, the the more illustrates that pretty well because it's sort of, they, uh, except that they do create the, the disorder, but then they have to fix the disorder. So in your theory, they, they wouldn't be able to create that kind of disorder, disorganization. I missed the first part. What theory is that? Oh, uh, the uh, Back to the Future, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> back to the future. Well, that I mean one thing that we do know about time travel, I think, is that Back to the Future is contradictory. Um, you can't go back and change the past. That I mean, so that much I think we do know. That what's what's realistic about time travel are these closed time-like loops. The the best example of which is a story that I read a long time ago about a guy who built a time machine to go back and meet Jesus Christ because he was a devout Christian and he, was, he wanted to go meet the Savior. And he travels back in time only to find out that there is no such person as Jesus Christ in the past. And that he, it, they never were born, they did not exist. And he becomes so obsessed with it that he recreates the character of Jesus from all the stories he learned as a kid, doing right. everything that Jesus And that's why that explains why oh, he didn't so he until he was 30. <laughs> Sorry? Oh, but so... Yeah, so he becomes... Yeah. He becomes Jesus, he gets, he gets crucified and so dies in the past. And that's a consistent story, though, because, you know, the, everything only occurs once. He never meets himself. Or, and it, so it's just kind of this, like, circle um, that is unbroken. And that's a perfectly consistent, logically consistent time travel story. Bootstrapping. Uh, bootstrapping, yeah, exactly. And the Terminator tried to have parts of this, you know, where they... That's where Skynet comes from. 
Richard, the, the, do you remember the name of, or the author of the Jesus Christ story? I want to read this. Up. I, it was so long ago. I know, actually, that's a cool story. Isaac Asimov has a version of this where it, it, this is where God comes from. Like, they build this re- really super computer, and each computer, it's like a singularity story. Yeah. And uh, the computer gets more and more and more intelligent, and then it goes back in time and becomes the Big Bang. Or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> nice. But but so the reason I brought up time travel is not only is it interesting, but uh, so I was going to ask what what a presentist has to say about time travel. Now it sounds like what Brit's going to say is, oh, a presentist, it uh, it's perfectly compatible to say that it's that it's not possible. Um, where by not possible, you're not physically possible in our world, even if it's conceptually possible or metaphysically possible or logically possible. Uh, there are ways the world could turn out where it just wouldn't work. And so a presentist could say that, and that's not too far-fetched at this moment in time. Uh, so that's cool. But I also think, what if it does turn out, I mean, that time, these closed time-like loops are possible, then what would a presentist have to say? Is that really good, strong evidence for something like eternalism? Um, and then I get, you get, I, I think, I don't know what to say. Like, could you have this movable present view where, um, you know, my frame of reference can go back or my... Well, there, I mean, you, there's another view, an alternative to presentism that's called the passage view. And the passage view is uh, simply just saying that there is this uh, now that has special properties, but the special properties are not those of existence. It's something else that's special. Uh, so all times yeah, it's and like all, a moving spotlight view. It's very similar, except that this one is um, borrowing from the equivalent view in um, in modal logic. Mm. Williamson has defended that view, where you have something like only the actual world is concrete, what the all the other worlds are abstract. So uh, you would have something similar. So the past and the future are abstract, but the the present is concrete. I um, see. Okay. And then you so get different than logic from that because you can preserve uh, the Barkin uh, formula and the inverse Barkin formula because the domain is the same for at all points in time. So you have the same domain. So you, you get a really cool, very standard classical logic from it, and. You avoid the problem of non-existence, the non-existence of the past, and the non-existence, possible non-existence of the future, and you get what the presentist really wants. Well, so, but they still have non-existence, though, right, Brad? Because it, it doesn't, the past doesn't exist. It does something else. So oh, it does non- exist. The past exists. So, oh, it has existence. It's abstract. Ah, uh, so it, it's a different kind of existence, but it's still existing? Yeah, so there, if there, I mean, I, I don't like the idea of different kinds of existence. This sounds like my Nongian, but but it exists is that it's abstract, right? So the past past objects are abstract and times are abstract. What's abstract mean in this context? Just I can't be touched. Is it a positive? (laughs) That seems right. I can't touch the past. <laughs> I know, but I don't know what abstract. I, I guess I, maybe I just don't know what an abstract object is, in, unless you mean like a conceptual object or something. I mean, I is this some primitive positive? <laughs> it's just uh, you, you, I guess you have, it would have to be a, something like a Platonist to for this to work. Right. So that's the disadvantage. Um, so you have these abstract things in the past. So there can be two things that are exactly alike in all their properties, except that one of them is concrete and the other is abstract. I can have a yeah. concrete guitar and an abstract guitar. Yeah. 
<laughs> that sounds very philosophical. You get Khan's problem, right? Uh, what, what's the difference? A thousand dollars, abstract thousand dollars, and a concrete thousand dollars have the same buying power. So, <laughs> uh, we do have. I mean, I, I do wonder about this kind of view. Is this your four? Is this how you get a four D, a four dimensional version of this? That the four is so the four D stuff is the abstract extended things, and then you get the yeah. I mean, it's, it's a version, as you said, it's a version of the spotlight theory, but it, instead of using the metaphor, it borrows from modal logic. Other, so, so particularly Williamson has defended that view for, for the modal case. Right. Um, so, yeah, so you get existence eternalism, but you also get the special now. Special Don't you get a, a, a different problem, though, is like how do you turn something abstract into a concrete now? And how does that, that seems weird. Yeah, it does seem weird. Yeah. Whereas in the in the world case, <laughs> in the I world mean, case, you don't have to turn anything into anything. Yeah, I mean, Platonism, you know, it always makes sense because you can't get to these platonic objects. But if we're supposed to be like transporting through them or something, and that's and the past is like now a platonic object that once wasn't platonic but was concrete. That I that scene, I don't. I start to lose my grip on how you transition from. Uh, something being present and concrete to something to it becoming abstract, and I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah John Hawthorne has a slightly different uh, take on it. So his take on it. So he actually holds the passage view for time, but his take on it is that things are happening now. So the past existed and the future existed, but things are just happening now. Yeah. So what is it? What's happening? How does something happen? Um, By the way, that view sounds very happening. I like it. It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean that that seems to just disguise the problem with a with a with a phrase. I mean we want yeah. yeah. The spotlight happening, concrete. Right. So how does it go um, from one to the other? I mean that's what's nice. I mean it just does, dude. That's a, that's a good question. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. We, we, um, we'll, but we'll but if you had it, I think with the. I think the why you suggested this maybe was because if you had to be like this, then you could make sense of a presentist time traveler, sort of going make just going back to the abstract thing and re-actualizing it or something. Yeah. Re-concretizing it. Re-concretizing. Or re make it re-happen. Re-happening, man. <laughs> I like the idea of the uh, of going back to and uh, joining or another frame of reference possibly, or having group frames of reference. Um, oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, that's work needs to be done to make sense of this idea. But I, I wish that presentists would think more about time travel, um, or not think more about it, but write more about it, because I, I do think that um, this is an interesting issue that has been underexplored in the literature. Yeah. Probably because so many people have just rejected a theories and presentism out of hand because of special special general relativity. I, that's my feeling anyway, that a lot of people yeah, are trying to I vaguely recall there being a paper defending presentism and time traveling. Really? Um, but I, I forget if it was a paper that was accepted or rejected. <laughs> okay. Aha, <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh, well, you know, that has nothing to do with the quality of the arguments, in my opinion, but... Um, no, know. I think it was one I, at least, I, I think I refereed it, and I think I accepted it. What happened to it is, I don't know, and it's not my problem if it was rejected. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's not my fault. <laughs> exactly. so we, we need to pause for another one of our breaks. Break it up. Wait, 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 time, a landing Death needs time like a junkie needs junk. 
And what does death need time for? The answer is so simple. Death needs time for what it kills to grow in, for our poop's sake. Death needs time for what it kills to grow in, for our poop's sweet sake, you stupid, vulgar, greedy, ugly American death sucker. Death needs time for what it kills to grow in, for our poop's sweet sake. Okay, well, welcome back, everybody. I'd like to take things in a, a slightly different direction. Wait, hold on. But if I know what you're going to say, can I jump in real fast? Because if you're going to talk about synesthesia, is that what you're going to do? No. Okay. <laughs> it's still, it's about time, but also okay, a different direction. There's a pun involved. I see. Good. Yeah. Then I wanted, yeah, okay. Let me show you how this is. The, the directionality of time. And there's this little uh, yes. kind of puzzle that, that I've been obsessed with for a long time. And I've only recently learned, Hello. Yeah. You guys can still hear me. I just got a weird yeah. morning that I have disappeared. Yeah, it does that sometimes. And then if it switches and switches back, you're back now. I became abstract for a second. <laughs> yes, you did. So there we go. <laughs> yeah, you were, you were so last week, Pete. So this is something I've talked to Richard about, and I learned recently it's called the problem of the time-reverse doppelganger. My understanding of it, you, you could think of it as a, a kind of thought experiment that goes like this. Imagine a, uh, a duplicate of the space-time region that includes the three of us since our conversation started today up to the present moment. Uh, so imagine out somewhere on the far side of the galaxy, there's like a, a swamp man style duplicate of that, of that space time region, which is about, uh, you know, that would be like about an hour worth of, of time. And it would have as much space as could include New York, New Jersey and St. Louis. And it just pops into existence Swamp Man style or Boltzmann Brain style. And it's intrinsically just like the space-time region that we're in right now. It's got all the same molecules and all the same arrangements, but it's time reversed in, in the following sense. Everything that comes next in, in, our, in our little uh, chunk of the story here comes before in that um, doppelganger region. So if we were to, if we were to uh, be able to observe it somehow, if we were to fly by, it would look like we would have a, a, a Brit and a Richard and a Pete who are um, talking, talking backwards. backwards. Yeah, and, and all the particles in their brains are moving backwards. And what one kind of puzzle... Satanic messages if you heard us talking backwards. <laughs> yeah, this whole thing has just been about... Yeah. Um, one kind of puzzle is, a, is a, it, it has to do with phenomenology. Whether uh, you can you can wonder whether our time reverse doppelgangers have the same phenomenology we do. One way you could ask the question is to pick one particular moment in time in our in our space time worm and the corresponding moment in time in that space time worm. So in both moments, you know, the the Pete Pete and his counterpart are saying the word counterpart. Only you know, the other guy saying it backwards, and they're both holding up their hands. And uh, okay. so, but there's a question about phenomenology. Would would there be any phenomenology in the the, the counterpart region? Is one one question. Some people, I guess, you could say that no, they would be zombies. Another question is, would their phenomenology be the same as ours? Would they would they have some kind of like backwards phenomenology? Or yeah, or the same? You're saying. Uh, my, I'm inclined I would say, to think that it would I would be think exactly. that they, um, 
either they would have a different phenomenology or they wouldn't be conscious. So they would be zombies. You don't think it's plausible that they have the same phenomenology? No, I don't think so. Well, I do think that there are such creatures out there because Brian Greene has uh, made some pretty plausible arguments for there being scenarios like that. In, in fact, this very scenario is out there somewhere. What is this? The, what's the plausible argument? Uh, well, it's, of course, it, it does make some assumptions about, you know, that the universe does not, you know, it's, it's unlimited and so forth, and then statistics on, you yeah. know, how many ways you can combine certain things. It's like the Nietzsche argument, but if you assume like, well, that this, these regions are just a finite collection of particles, yeah. but there's an infinite a number of particles or an infinite amount of time in which the particles are recombining, you can basically yeah. just logically derive that all of these combinations are actual at some right. point in this manifold. That's the, uh, but that's not, the but not violations of entropy. You don't. That doesn't seem. I mean. Yeah, that too. Yeah. So there's the second law of thermodynamics is violated in some part of the universe simply because it's big enough. It's consistent with the second law of thermodynamics that just at random all the particles of air in this room coalesce to form a uh, you know a, a perfect sphere, and and then I like suffocate because there's no air where I need to breathe. That's the, I mean, that's part of the point of saying that thermodynamics is not really a law. It's more of a statistical. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yes. what if you, I would say that, so I guess I would say that the, uh, the directionality of time or entropy is, is a law. Uh, and that there is a directedness in time that's fundamental to its nature. Oh, yeah. I do think that that's the case, but that's consistent with thing, with. Uh, Serving these people, saying everything backwards, right? Uh, yeah, but, but I would. But I was, oh, go ahead, though. I was, but I was connecting it to entropy. That the directionality of time is connected to entropy. Yeah, but that's why I'm saying that they wouldn't have the same phenomenology as us because because that is that direction of time. So they would either have a very very strange phenomenology that would be backwards, or they would be zombies because this would not be enough to produce consciousness. So one way of interpreting that view is to say that, that uh, what consciousness supervenes on is something uh, non-relational about time. Because if, if you think of time uh, it, 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 relationally, yeah. all the same relations uh, obtain in, in the two space-time regions, in our region and the doppelganger region. So there, there would have you're some kind of absolutist about about time. They're oriented in a different way. Well, with well to just about its direction. I mean, I don't have to be an absolutist about everything about time, but the direction Fair would enough. be right. So it wouldn't be reversible, fully reversible. It'd be reversible only in the sense that uh, that you could have people that would look like we were just playing this in reverse, um, but. If they had the sufficient brain basis for creating consciousness, it would be very strange. Or they would just not be conscious. Well, and it would be strange because they would be ex ex like experiencing something that was about to happen next, but then it wouldn't happen next. Something would happen which they would experience as happening previously. Right. That, that would be well, very strange. Just as it's weird if, uh, if you look at, at a video uh, played in reverse, right? Maybe you can play this one in reverse afterwards, and then you can see what it would be like to be there. <laughs> uh, 
yeah. So, you know what? This brings up some another direction that I was uh, hoping that we could turn this in um, because, uh, you know, what Pete was making, I, I think, well, maybe this isn't right. I don't know. But I think that there's kind of an analogy be- between people who like relational views about space and people who like eternalism and yeah. people who like substantivalism about space and yeah. people who like presentism. Um, do you think that's that there is a connection there? Because it sounds like what Pete was saying was really he, the relational bits are all the same, and so the, you know the relational structure. Yeah. So you have the same stuff. That sounds like it's very much of a piece with a view about a relationalism about space. Um, that sounds fair to me, Richard. Yeah, it sounds you fair. Know, you know what I? You know, so Pete, I wonder about uh, what you think about. Um, I don't know how much we want to get into this, actually. But uh, so one of the things that physicists always talk about are symmetries, and they're loving things like symmetries. Um, And, you know, there's some interesting stuff about symmetries, uh, where by symmetry, I mean the physical, like the physicist notion of symmetry, Mm -hmm. where it's invariant under a certain transformation. So uh, the most basic one would be a circle is invariant under mirror rotation. So that's a symmetry. and but it, and so a lot of people have said that these symmetries are very deep facts about nature. But it looks like we have some violation of symmetry, um, uh, especially with the weak um, force. So you get parity violations um, where the exchanging the left side of a thing for the right side of a thing, or switching mirror reversing them that way, changes the way they interact with other particles. And so there are laws uh, which you know these aren't the most basic laws we have because we don't know enough about physics yet. But the laws that we are talking about right now only allow left side of these particles to interact with the left side of the other particles and right sides of particles to interact with the right sides of particles. And so you get, so you get this violation of symmetry. Oh, but only in the, I mean, you, get it, you don't get it in other places like electromagnetism. But with the weak nuclear force, it looks like you get this kind of violation of, of parity, of symmetry. And yeah. then it seems to me that you can make an argument that, um, well, that counts against the relational view of space. Uh, because, um, well, there, there is a kind of handedness or sightedness maybe to space um and so maybe it makes sense to say that uh that it's not simply relations there's got to be something more than that um in order to make sense of how these kind of i guess they call them chiral you know because uh these kind of chiral reactions so p do you know what do you think about this because it sounds to me it sounds like this counts against your view like this kind of empirical result uh that it looks like that we have actual uh, chiral, there are these chiral things. We don't have their chiral. We haven't found their chiral pairs. Yeah, uh, and there's no even read the needs, um, no need to posit them because uh, uh, the interactions between these particles. Uh, so I'm not talking about supersymmetry or anything like that. I'm talking about something much more mundane, mundane um, which is just that you know a certain electron has a side, a left and a right, and in these kind of weak nuclear interactions, which the weak nuclear force is pretty important. It's what keeps the electron in the uh, valence shells that it's in. So that's important. Not as important as a strong nuclear force, which, you know, binds, whatever. But okay. So it's an important force of nature. Um, and it looks like it has a side to it. So it looks like you can make sense of saying that, you know, it's a, it's a lefty, not a righty. <laughs> it's an up, not a down. Um, and relationless about space seem to be committed to denying that um, because there, are, there can't be any unitary properties of being left or right. If you're right. I'm not quite getting how the argument goes. Like, if, if we for some, if we found only left-handed gloves, we just couldn't find a, a right-handed glove. Yeah, and that's never happened that's until recently. Count. That's supposed to count. I don't see how that's supposed to count against the relationalist. 
Well, the relationalist uh, is committed to the claim that there is no single glove, <laughs> that it only exists in relation to another glove. <laughs> That's what relationalism is. So you can't have just one glove if you're a relationalist. <laughs> right. You know, I'm not following it. Well, what are you following? So the relationalist might say something like the, the only uh, facts about spatial uh, spatial position are these relative facts. They right, have and, I, and these violate that because they're not rela relational facts. How are they not relational facts? Uh, there's a left side of the thing which you can specify independent of any other relation. <laughs> So, so, so suppose we would just pick Florida. Yeah. And uh, Florida's got the um, that top part, the, the the handle, and then there's like the, the the tip. Okay. And then we we talk about like whether things are closer to the tip or, or closer to the handle. Right. Um, and uh, you want to know what what left-handed gloves are? They're the ones whose thumbs are closer to the tip of Florida. Right. Or something like that. What, what's okay, the problem? So how does that address my what I was talking about at all? <laughs> I don't understand what you were talking about because I don't see how it wouldn't address it. I think you need to explain uh, why there couldn't be just left-handed gloves. Why do you need the right hand? Who are you talking to? Uh, Pete. Me. Oh, you're talking to Pete. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> you're the relationalist. <laughs> yeah. I'm the relationalist. Why couldn't you just have the, I mean, it looks like what you get is just something that's intrinsically left. There's something important about the left of it. The right is not important, and you don't need to specify in relation to some other thing. I thought what you were trying to do, Richard, is, is run Kant's argument on me about... Oh, Kant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about physics. Well, I mean, it's just a fancy version of Kant. But that's a that has some kind of conceivability argument. Uh, no, these are actual things, electrons. And the, and the, but the actual things they have a they have a chirality to it. They have a side. Yeah. Yeah, it's could, sort of like if human beings had developed only with their left arm. Yeah. There the wouldn't problem? be a right hand. Yeah. So there wouldn't the be a right a right glove. We wouldn't need one. But see the way that, uh, way that, the way that I understand Kant's argument it goes something like we can conceive of two different um, worlds one in which there's just the left-handed stuff and one in which there's the right-handed stuff and there's nothing in the in the relations internal to those words worlds that would serve to distinguish between them but since we grasp this in thought uh, since we have a concept of it um, it 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 shows that the relationalist is, is wrong. But that seems to be, importantly, it's a, it's a conceivability argument. No, so uh, actually, different because he's actually taken the, uh, the conceivability and put it back into reality. So what he's saying is that the, it doesn't look like the empirical evidence supports the view that there's always both a left-hand glove and a right-hand glove. It seems yeah. that the evidence supports that there sometimes will just be a left-hand glove in reality, in actuality. Right. Not a, not conceivability, exactly. Right. But actually, I don't see. But the, I don't see what the relation, what the problem, that the relationalist is supposed to have. Well, now imagine just one of those electrons. <laughs> so that's, I guess, where your conceivability stuff is. So, but actually, so you look, can you prepare a, one of these electrons in the lab. You don't have to imagine it. You just don't have a lab. So no, you take an asymmetrical, take an asymmetrical object, and you want to know what its asymmetry consists in. So there's a, a, a left-handed glove 
What is it that makes it uh, asymmetrical? Well, it's asymmetrical because the thumb is closer to the North Pole than the pinky finger is. So the, 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 the pinky and the thumb aren't, aren't equally far from the North Pole. So we could, we could talk about this asymmetry between the two different parts of the glove in terms of the relations that it bears to the, to the different parts of the actual world. So if, if it turns out there are fundamental physical reactions where electrons veer off to the left or, and not to the right or something like that, it seems that the relationalist is similarly poised to just say like, yeah, look, I'll tell you the relations that, uh, that account for what's going on here or, or in what, what's going on here consists. It's just that the electrons all veer towards the North Pole uh, instead of toward the, the tip of Florida. Uh, right. So it's a kind of relationalism that does not require symmetries. Yeah, that, I guess that's a, a way of putting it, right? That so you can you can have a relationalism that doesn't require that that space is, is symmetrical. Yeah, I don't is know that what you were offering, Brett. Yes, that was what I was suggesting. But you, but but you guys think that's a problem. No, I just think that that would then allow for uh, a direction of time, right? So you could be a relationalist and you have a direction of time. Oh, you got me. Nice. <laughs> nice. Okay, right. Okay. <laughs> I, back to the drawing board. <laughs> I don't think that, yeah, I don't think, I, uh, uh, and this might not hold up under scrutiny either, by the way, but I, I, do, I do think it at least opens the door for some, some kind of subtentivalism about either of these things. Um, but ultimately, I, you know, I probably think that we have good reason to think that space and time are both emergent properties anyway. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and, but I mean, even, even at the physics level, um, you know, so I, I think that, some, some of the work in string theory suggests a way in which space could be emergent, or at least um, n-dimensional space could be emergent from an n-minus-one right, right. dimensional space. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, so you could, maybe you could make sense of space itself emerging from something non-spatial, as sometimes people um, s speculate or something like that. So I, I, I'm not, I mean, but that wouldn't show that space itself wasn't a substance, though. It just shows an emergent substance. So I, I still think that substantivalism isn't ruled out. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, yeah, I'm going to have to look more into this stuff, so we'll have to back to the drawing board, as Pete said. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Space Time Mind. For more info about today's episode, as well as info about our video series and other supplements, check out our website at spacetimemind.com. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your comments on Twitter, at spacetimemind99 or on our blog at spacetimemind.com. And please rate us on iTunes to help spread the word. Until next time, this is Pete Mandic saying, Wow, wow, slow down, egghead. Space time. Mind. Space time. Mind. Mind. Space time. Mind. Mind.